We are thankful, as mentioned earlier, for the attendance, for the opportunity that God has given each of us this Lord's Day morning to assemble and to gather in His name in the way that we are. As mentioned also, there continue to be many for whom we pray and hope that conditions and situations for them are much improved in the very, very near future. As you know, we have been reading through the Bible this present year, and at this point, at least in the New Testament, we've arrived at the book of 1 Peter, that at least was part of our reading this past week. And as we read that, along with the second epistle of Peter, at least parts thereof, we were challenged in so many ways to give appreciation to a lesson I've entitled Commitment in Christianity. That concept, that thought that attaches to the subject of commitment. I would ask you very quickly to think with me about these introductory remarks. Isn't it remarkable to give thought to some of those matters that the inspired Apostle Peter directed to those individuals to whom he wrote? He highlighted for them issues of doctrine and the seriousness that accompanied their attachment to that doctrine. And not only that, he highlighted for them the practicality, the circumstances surrounding their carrying out of those matters. And today, you and I still stand strongly on the fact that doctrine is fundamentally important. But it's also true that the way that we carry out that doctrine, the manner in which we present those truths, is truly something that God wishes us to consider very seriously. It is with that in mind, I would invite you to consider then some matters found throughout these five chapters of 1 Peter, matters that challenge all of us to think not once but twice about the issues touching this subject of commitment. Let's make some initial comments if we might and then proceed to use those verses that Peter directly puts before us. First of all, what about a definition? When you and I give thought to the word commitment, that is a word that's frequently employed in our day, isn't it? And yet when we look at, say, a definition that the Merriam-Webster dictionary might give us, it has the following definition. It is that promise to be loyal to someone or something or a secondary appreciation of that definition, that state of being obligated or emotionally impelled. I believe those do carry thoughts that do come to our mind as we think about the notion of commitment. But our immediate interest, I would suppose, would be more as to what does the word as it's used in the Bible mean. That word commit, it literally means from the original Greek language to place before. And there are several very interesting usages. You'll notice one of them in the very book that we're dealing with, 1 Peter 2.23, in which we notice there the commitment exemplified by Jesus Himself, placing His devotion, His submission to the will of God before anything else. Suffering, difficulties brought upon Him from the human family, even the barrier and burden brought by the cross, the Lord you and I know he's committed himself to that way of God. No wonder in light of that you'll appreciate in chapter 4 verse 19. In the same book another usage of that same word. Highlighting the notion there as it gives us an impression of the day of judgment and the safekeeping that you and I have given our souls to the very nature of God's commitment. I would invite you to think that in light of all of that. Doesn't it seem, at least in the world in which we live, that sometimes commitment is something that's often compromised, isn't it? We see it on occasion in the workplace. 
employees are not committed to the employer or to the place of business. And by the same token, employers sometimes aren't committed to the employees or to the place of business either. In the realm of sports, we see individuals who aren't committed to the team. They're committed to themselves and how much money they can individually earn regardless what happens to the team. Sometimes even in the home, we see a dearth of commitment. The parents aren't committed to one another. Maybe they aren't committed to the children. Maybe the children aren't committed to the well-being of the family either. You see, sometimes even in Christianity, maybe as one last quick observation, we often fail as we often observe it, even in that same matter. It would seem that as Peter wrote to those individuals, he set before them the importance and the commitment that comes with Christianity. And I would invite us to think about it as well for the next few minutes this morning. You'll notice our next observation is this one. One of the features that Peter set before them with such resounding strength was this one. Those that are Christians have a commitment to truth. In fact, you'll notice a few initial thoughts that come directly from that verse that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 22. Peter again says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Immediately we notice that there is a reference, a description of a state of affairs that was by no means positive or good. Notice verse, the opening part of the verse. Their souls at one time were in need of being purified. That means they were cankered with sin. They were left astray from association with and the marvelous relationship that can be had with God. You'll notice in light of that, so many verses in the sacred text of the Bible remind us of what sin does to us. In 1 John 3 verse 8, for example, we notice there that he that commits sin is of the devil. Now that's not a positive consideration at all. In fact, what an extremely great negative one. One that commits sin is of the devil. That means he's following the pathway of the devil. He's choosing to behave as the devil would have him do. We notice again that in this verse, what a great statement is made about these individuals. Peter said, you have purified your souls. That soul that was impure because of sin, that soul that was covered over with the blackness and the disassociation that comes with sin, Peter said, that is no longer the case. You've purified your souls. As you think about then the commitment to truth that's housed in a statement like that one. Notice that they had obeyed something. The cleansing of the soul, the purification of the soul doesn't come by good intentions or good thoughts. It doesn't come in any way other than obedience to the truth. And thankfully these individuals to whom Peter wrote had a commitment to that truth. They had obeyed it. What a grand statement for of course all of us today to give thought to obedience and the commitment that it has in relation to truth. Later in this same book, in chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, we have a description about the nature of Christ in His commitment as well to following the way of God. No wonder I would use that as an opportunity to help us see how important it is to appreciate that commitment. 
on that glorious day when you think back in your mind to the day you became a Christian. There was a monumental transformation that took place that day. You previously had been a person in sin. At that moment, your sins were forgiven when you obeyed the gospel, culminating in your baptism. The blood of Jesus Christ washed your sins away. And at that moment, you were pure. Your soul was cleansed. You were in a perfect and harmonious relationship with God. But at that point, notice that state of affairs is something that you should desire to continue day by day and moment by moment to continue in that wonderful state that takes commitment. It's easy enough, isn't it, to lose one's heart and lose one's determination and lose that element of commitment. And so too, to become wayward, to begin to again become lost. I would ask you to think about the following observation. There are many forces that were at work to cause challenges for the folks to whom Peter wrote this book. In fact, if you'd like to take note, the key word in the whole book of 1 Peter is the word suffering. It occurs more often than any other. These folks were called upon, and often in that day and time, they met with great persecution and suffering, and despite that, Peter encouraged them, you be committed. You stay faithful to the Lord no matter what these external pressures may be. You notice with me, again in verse 22 of chapter number 1, "...seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth." Through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another fervently. The last part of that verse, see that ye love one another fervently, describes an ongoing desire and an ongoing state that, were, that was to continue. The nature then of that commitment may be seen in that last matter to which I would bring your attention. This word obedience... We've already highlighted how that, that takes a mattering commitment. But notice how frequently that word occurs also in this book of 1 Peter. We have chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verses 14 and 22 alike. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 6. And chapter 4, verse 17. All six references highlighting the importance and the needfulness and the demand for obedience. Notice again how that we seemingly live in an age when often obedience is compromised. After all, what I think should be good enough and what my intent is ought to be sufficient. But yet to, the, to these individuals, Peter highlighted the importance of obedience. May you and I today continue to love the thought of being continuously obedient and faithful. It is with that in mind that prepares us for another observation. There was something else that we see highlighted in this book of 1 Peter, this notion of commitment to holiness. Let's develop that thought by looking at some of these considerations. In chapter 1, verse number 16, we have in the midst of those verses a discussion about holiness. Verse number 16 explicitly says, "...be ye holy, for I am holy." These individuals, these strangers scattered abroad, as chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 tell us, these were individuals that again were suffering rather greatly. But you'll notice they still were called to holiness. As you and I give thought to holiness, that is a consideration that links us to God. 
It is a characteristic, not just on Sunday and not just on Wednesday. It should be characteristic of the lives of those that are dedicated to Him every moment of every day. A study in holiness. Aren't we told in Hebrews 12, 14 that without holiness no man will see the Lord? If you and I do not, in fact, live in a holy fashion, living after that manner of holiness as the Scripture set it forth, we have no expectation then to ultimately be judged rightly and faithful at the judgment. These discussions of holiness bring us to this. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 9 through 11, we notice exactly a strong temptation on the part of those of that day, and certainly we understand it occurs for you and me today as well. I would invite you to notice particularly verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. These individuals to whom Peter was writing were under constant pressure to compromise the way of holiness, to give in to the ways of the world, those fleshly lusts to which he refers. But you'll notice that the wording of the inspired writer was this, abstain, have nothing to do with them, remain aloof therefrom, if you will. That's strong language, isn't it? You and I realize we are not in position to play with, if you will, those fleshly lusts. For as faithful and diligent soldiers of the cross, we are, of course, to be committed to holiness. Maybe that commitment you and I can further consider in some of these verses beyond that in the following way. Look at chapter 2, verse number 18. We notice in that passage, servants... Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Among other things, we notice there was a situation in which Peter addressed those that were slaves or servants, and he even admonished them to be committed to holiness. You behave toward your master in the way that would be befitting of God, now, if there was ever perhaps a situation where you and I could argue, well, maybe this isn't right and this isn't a proper thing and that slave would have every right to be mean or ugly or by some means inappropriately disposed toward the master, maybe such would be defendable. But Peter said, absolutely not. Even in that walk of life, you be committed to holiness. You and I can easily make those considerations and extensions to every walk of our life. On the job, you and I, whatever that profession, may, whatever that walk of life may be, we too should be committed to holy living all the time. If we're an employee or an employer, if we are a student or a teacher, if we are a person walking in another arena or profession of life, in every way, Peter encourages us to be individuals who would be given to holiness. That holiness also is seen in chapter 3, verses 10 and following, by a wonderful set of rewards and benefits that come with it. I would ask you to notice very briefly what some of them are. Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. 
That commitment to holiness thus should encompass what we say and how we say it. There he said, let him refrain his tongue from evil. In the heat of a moment, in other circumstances that you and I face on a daily basis, do circumstances arise in which we forfeit our holiness for a few minutes and we speak that which is improper, speak that which is evil? You'll notice in Ephesians 4.29 we read, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. As you and I then even think about our commitment to holiness, it includes what we say and how we say it. You'll notice in these verses also, verses 12 and 14 of that same chapter, we notice it has the beautiful benefit of prayer. That is, of course, a privilege given to you and me as Christians that is not given to the world at large. You and I have the marvelous capability of approaching our Heavenly Father, praying with confidence that He will hear and that He will answer. That kind of confidence, you notice in verse 14, reads like this, "...but and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled." So far as we have studied that commitment to Christianity this morning, we've been reminded, haven't we, of the nature of commitment, the characteristic of its movement toward holiness. What about the fourth observation? We find in the midst of this book that there's another attribute of commitment that we appreciate, and it's found in the third chapter. In the opening seven verses of chapter number 3, Paul makes some remarkable statements about that entity you and I call marriage. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. There were some individuals in the church to which Peter was writing. It was the case that the wife was a member of the, of the congregation, but the husband was an unbeliever. Peter highlighted that her life should be characterized with such holiness, such determination, such commitment to those things that by her example, she would have a strong opportunity to win him to the Lord. Verse 2 goes on to say, "...while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, or of wearing of gold, or of putting on apparel." But let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Peter by no means says that wearing nice dresses and clothes and fixing of the hair and wearing bracelets is wrong. But he says that shouldn't be the entity and the totality of that for which you stand. Those ladies were to be characterized with a meek and gentle, quiet spirit, Verse number 4, the hidden man of the heart was to be holy and directed and committed unto God. Verse 5 proceeds to say it like this, For after this manner in the old time the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection to their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So far in that description that you and I have seen, you notice the marvelous matter that seemingly touches every component of life. 
Holy living on the job. Holy living even in the church. Holy living as you and I even appreciate in the family. Some of these additional comments. You notice that Peter first addresses the women, the wives, if you please, encouraging them to be holy and chaste and gentle, encouraging them to live in that holy fashion such that they could be a powerful example of goodness and faithfulness even to an unbelieving husband. But even beyond that, you notice that there is a discussion of submission. That discussion, of course, highlighted in this place as well as other New Testament passages that submission, you notice in verse number 6, even attached to the Old Testament example of Abraham and Sarah, she submissive to him. And in that submission, Peter uses that as an example that he builds upon in the following way. That attitude of submission quickly brings him to address the men. Husbands also have a responsibility in this. Verse number 7 presents it like this. The word begins, the verse does, with the word likewise. That is, this is a continuing thought that is addressed in a way comparable to that which has just been asserted. Likewise, ye husbands. So now, after having given some thoughts of great value and instruction to the wives, now to the husbands. Dwell with them. So husbands, dwell with them. You'll notice on that particular slide, there are several attributes of that verse that are worthy of our consideration, gentlemen. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the, weaker, unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Some additional thoughts that are worthy of our consideration. You'll notice, dwell with them according to knowledge. That word knowledge, of course, brings with it the consideration of understanding, the consideration of an attempt to appreciate. And with all of that said, there seems to be a recognition of respect and honor that it's vouchsafed with respect to the wife to her husband and with respect to the husband to his wife. Even beyond that, you'll notice that that verse describes giving honor the husband should then honor his wife, understanding that she too is made in the image and in the likeness of God. And as such, they have been bound together by the very attribute of God into one flesh. In Matthew 19, wasn't it true that Jesus on that occasion pointed out, Whatsoever God hath joined together, let not man put us under. That union was, of course, etched and completed by the very work of God. The preacher by himself didn't accomplish it, nor did the state of Tennessee in the, in the proclamation of the marriage license. Those were, of course, considerable matters, but it was God that did the joining. As you give thought then to the wife and her attitude of submission and her attitude to her husband and the husband's attitude toward her of giving honor to her as the weaker vessel... All of that leads us to notice that this reciprocity describes a commitment. A commitment just as sound as what we have seen earlier in relation to holiness, just as sound as what we've noticed earlier in its defining characteristics. We still know today that it seems on so many occasions that that attribute of commitment is a matter that we seemingly see less and less often. 
the nightly news or at least the newspapers sometimes tell us about situations in which it seems for such frivolous things and for such minor things a marriage is ripped asunder. And yet in this we notice that Peter highlights by the very agency of the Holy Spirit an attribute of commitment. You and I still as faithful servants of the Lord lift high a banner of commitment as the Bible teaches it. And we notice even beyond that in our fifth statement, there's another commitment we find in this book of First Peter, a commitment to the church. Let's in fact give some appreciation to that as the last element in our lesson this morning, the commitment to the church. Let me call to your attention, if I might, chapter number 5, verses 1 and 2. As Peter reached near the conclusion of this first epistle, he says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind. Among the presentations of those two verses, let me ask you to notice two prepositional phrases. Really, it's the same prepositional phrase that occurs twice. Among you. Verse 1, elders which are among you. Verse 2, feed the flock which is among you. The inspired writer, Peter, directly held before us the thought that there was among them. There were elders among them, and there were members among them. That's a description of a reciprocal arrangement in which there's a local congregation. And the elders were among them in the same way that they were among the elders. It wasn't a distributed organization in which there were individuals here and yon and there and here. There was a togetherness. They were among one another. That description of the local congregation leads us to perhaps think with some care about the way the church is described. There are verses in the New Testament especially that describe the church in a universal way. Wherever that church may exist and wherever it may be. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is a reference to the church in its general character wherever local place it may exist. The Lord's blood purchased it and built it. We also remember that there are other statements about the general church as wherever it may exist. But it is also true that there are many references to local congregations found within the pages of the Bible. The church in Jerusalem is the first one of which we read beginning from Acts chapter 2 onward. And especially we notice in Acts chapter 11, that congregation was busy in benevolence and busy in evangelism. Later we read about the church in Antioch, and we read about the congregation of the Lord's people in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 1 and 2. The church at Rome, Romans 1 verse 7. The church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 1 and 2. Do we not even read of the seven churches of Asia, those being Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea? 
And so we notice that there is a strong appreciation in the Bible for the authority and the existence of a local group of people, local brothers and sisters in Christ. And we find in verses like the one that you and I just noted that there is a commitment to that congregation. I would call to your attention that word strangers that is used very near the beginning of this book. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1, Peter wrote, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So on the one hand, Paul described these individuals as strangers. But then in chapter 5, he said, there are elders among you. And you are among the elders. That commitment to the local congregation leads us then to appreciate these conclusions and these remarks. They are indeed very powerful and in some ways very needful. You and I know that if elders are to be among a congregation and the congregation among the elders, there is an identity then associated with the membership of those individuals so that the elders know who they're shepherds of and the members know who their shepherds are. There is thus a biblical consideration of a membership, if you please. And when you and I give thought to a directory or to other ways that make a list of those that are members of, say, this congregation or of some other one, we understand that that's just a matter of attempting to appreciate this commitment to the local congregation. In Philippians 1, verse number 1, Paul, in writing to the church in Philippi, made note of the deacons, the bishops, and yea, the membership or the saints that are part of that organization, that group. You and I can then so easily see how vital it is to appreciate the identification of ourselves with a local congregation, to let those elders know that I want to be involved in the work and I'm excited to be a part of this organization, this local body of believers, and I'd like to place my membership there, here with you. As you and I think about the opportunity to then work in a local congregation and our commitment to it, doesn't it highlight the strength and the vitality of that work? The opportunity to carry out the work of the Lord in that local community? As Peter wrote all these things, you'll notice he closes chapter number 5 like this. Verse number 11 of 1 Peter 5 says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. You'll notice, among other things, here was a congregation in a distant place, Babylon, sending greetings to this local group of people to whom Peter was writing. With all of that, we close our lesson with some concluding thoughts. We've studied this morning about commitment to Christianity that has seemingly been a very thorough part of the book of 1 Peter. As a part of that, we looked at the definition, what it means to be committed, the idea of the dedication, the determination that goes with it. And then we saw specific examples that you and I as Christians must be committed to truth. We must be committed to holiness. We understand the commitment that we enjoy to marriage. And finally, the commitment that we feel to the local congregation, the church, 
here at Pippin. As those comments bring to a close that particular lesson, it of course puts before us a challenge to each of us to think with care about the placement of our priorities and the placement of the other matters of our life. Are you committed to Christianity and am I? Or is it merely a facade? Is it something we put on and seemingly take off when it's convenient? Peter knew nothing about that when he wrote to these individuals, did he? No matter what the circumstances, they were admonished in their commitment. Today, if you're not a faithful Christian, the question obviously must be why. God, heaven has done its part. The plan of salvation has been put in place. Jesus did everything to execute that plan with perfectness and with power. At this point, the decision rests with you. If all isn't well with your soul, it may well be you've never rendered initial obedience to the gospel. Again, why not? If you know the difference in right and wrong, and you understand what is the main message of the Bible, namely that Jesus came to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15, and you realize you are one of them, then you know enough to where you can in fact put on Christ in baptism today. Believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and then be baptized, submitting yourself to that act of burial and water. If we could be of help to you today in that way, we'd be delighted to do it. If you have become a Christian at some former time but have not remained committed to Christianity, you've allowed the devil's devices to separate you from the very glove and grace of God, why not come back today to your first love? We'd be happy to pray with you and to, for, to pray for you. We would only ask you let us know the way in which we could be of assistance to you. Adam has chosen a song of encouragement, and as we sting that in just a moment, if we could be of help to you, we would enjoy doing so. Why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?